Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up later in the hour, Iowa State University political scientist Karen Kadrowski and her co-author talk about their new book titled Walking the Gendered Tightrope. But first, let's talk about the economy. Here in the Midwest and nationwide, is it good now or is it bad? Well, that probably depends on who you ask, what you read, what you see in terms of um, reports on it. And don't be surprised if that answer is tangled up in our partisan politics um, here to untangle the economic data. Peter Arasm, university professor emeritus of economics and the program for the study of Midwest markets and entrepreneurship at Iowa State University. Peter, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I wanted to start with the the Fed's um, announcement yesterday. Um, uh, the Federal Reserve has opted to leave interest rates unchanged, but the chairman, Jerome Powell, suggested there may be as many as three rate cuts next year, 2024. Uh, he said rate hikes appear to be over for now in the economy, well positioned for a so-called soft landing. Now, we've seen a series of rate hikes for a year and a half uh, so are we confident? Are you confident we're done with them based on these remarks? Well, I think we're probably done with rate hikes. I'm not entirely convinced that they're going to be able to as aggressively reduce interest rates going into 2024. Uh, while overall inflation is down, core inflation, which is excluding the more volatile uh, energy and food sector, really hasn't changed that much over the last uh, four months, although it's it's below the 6, 6% peak that it had a year ago. So I think they're just going to monitor that. If, if they don't get substantial uh, reductions in core inflation, I think they'll keep interest rates where they are. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to really forecast at this point if we could get back to pre-pandemic levels of interest rates. Right. I mean, a lot of the gains in inflation are because energy prices have fallen. So uh, from a year ago, if you look at at the energy sector, uh, you know, prices are actually 5% below where they were. And if you look at gasoline prices, they're about 11% below where they were. But that's not because of anything the Fed is doing. That's because world oil prices have fallen. Mm-hmm. So uh, the chairman, uh, Powell, uh, mentioned, as we've been talking about for months, this so-called soft landing. Uh, remind us and describe what a so-called soft landing would be and what that would mean for everyday folks. Well, a soft landing would be if you had, say, a modest slowdown in the in the pace uh, of uh, employment growth, but without an actual reduction in employment. So no appreciable increase in the unemployment rate, uh, perhaps slowing down of the pace of wage increases, which has been quite robust over the last six months, but no actual move into a recession. Mm-hmm. And people would start to see real wage gains, 
Well, we've had real wage gains since about June of this year. So the rate of wage increases has been greater than the rate of inflation, which I think is a welcome respite over the previous 12 months where uh, inflation was uh, taking a larger share uh, of the average uh, income for, for U.S. residents. Mm-hmm. Talk more about I- inflation. Um, we had the, the gasoline prices uh, falling, keeping a, a lid on inflation last month. Consumer prices 3.1% in November uh, from a year ago, according to the Labor Department, released earlier this week. Um, have we seen the full impact of higher borrowing costs on inflation? Well, what's keeping it up? Well, I think there are several things that are are still spurring inflation. I mean, we've had very uh, strong consumer demand for goods and services. In fact, uh, coming out of uh, Thanksgiving, uh, the retail sector actually had above average uh, uh, consumer demand for, for retail goods and services. That strong consumer demand in the face of still having very... Um, large numbers of unfilled vacancies in the U.S. economy means that there's still uh, inflationary pressure from the consumer side. I think that's one of the big reasons why we haven't made more success uh, on on trying to reduce inflation is that consumer demand really hasn't abated that much, although you're starting to see reductions in the demand for the big ticket items. So, for example, uh, we've had a reduction in, in the price of used cars and the, the increase in the price of uh, new automobiles was just 1% over where it was a year ago. So we're starting to see reductions in the prices of the sorts of things that you might borrow money in order to purchase. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that demand you're referring to has anything to do with the pandemic savings. A few years ago, we, a lot of Americans saved a lot of money at an unprecedented speed. The pandemic hit, household spending plummeted, people stayed at home, businesses temporarily shut down. And then at the same time, as you've spoken about on this program, households saw a dramatic increase in income because of the massive federal government spending. You know, is the pandemic savings uh, that people have had still having an impact? Well, uh, I think that it has an impact, although uh, for people at the lower tail of the income distribution, I think a lot of those transfer payments have now been spent. But there's another um, potential issue on the horizon, and that is that there's been a sharp increase in credit card debt over the last six months. And so it appears that some consumers are trying to maintain their consumer demand by borrowing, uh, and whether or not that's going to be a potential problem uh, remains to be seen. Some people, you know, who had um, uh, a a discontinuity on their um, required debt payments during the pandemic, now they have to pay those uh, the, that debt back, right? They have to pay interest payments on that that debt. But they also, uh, a good share of them also acquired additional debt during that period of time. So I think we may be seeing another, another potential cloud on the horizon, and that is uh, a rising share uh, of people who have gotten themselves into, uh, uh, into a problem 
managing their their debt load. Mm-hmm. And what would be the implications of that? Well, ultimately, that's going to cut back on consumer demand, but we're also going to have uh, potentially some move to trying to figure out how to help people who have gotten themselves uh, further into debt during the course of the last three years when mm-hmm. they didn't have to pay back uh, either their, uh, for some of them, their rent, their mortgage payments, uh, their student debt in particular, uh, for that particular segment of the population, uh, on average, they acquired additional debt during the pandemic. Peter Orasm, I want to ask you about a lecture I believe you're giving tomorrow. Is that right? That's right. The title of your talk, The New Stagflation, Will Labor Shortages Derail the Pandemic Recovery? Stagflation, I haven't heard that for quite a long time. Give us an overview of the points you'll be making. Well, some of the... the the new stagflation isn't necessarily that the unemployment rate is high, but the employment rate is low. And that may seem kind of strange, except that uh, what we've had was a drop off in labor supply. And so people who uh, uh, labor supply is made up of people who are unemployed and people who are employed. What we've had is a reduction in the number of people unemployed because they dropped out of the labor market during the pandemic, and it doesn't appear that they're coming back. Mm -hmm. And that's a drag on the overall U.S. uh, economy and the recovery from the pandemic. Uh, I thought it was going to be a, a more serious drag this year than it was. And so the third quarter, we had very robust economic growth. Uh, So maybe I was a little bit Uh, too pessimistic about where we are going. Uh, On the other hand, if you look at Iowa, where we're lagging the rest of the United States, it's clear that the inability to uh, hire in Iowa is is holding back economic growth uh, in Iowa. At the same time, we're seeing that the inability to hire up to the level that firms want is holding back on the production of goods and services that people want to purchase, and that's creating an inflationary uh, pressure uh, on on the economy. Uh, we may be not, maybe we're not going to see that type of uh, very slow economic growth accompanied by inflation for the U.S. economy as a whole, but I think we're seeing it in Iowa. Mm-hmm. So this insufficient labor supply, especially here in Iowa, uh, in what sectors in particular? It's almost across the board. If you look at at the Iowa uh, economy and employment growth by sector in Iowa, almost every sector were lagging the overall growth in that same sector for the U.S. economy as a whole. Uh, the only areas that we seem to be holding our own are, are things like uh, n- uh, non-durable manufacturing, right? The production of food um, and food byproducts. We're strong on that area relative to the U.S. economy as a whole, but almost every other sector, uh, we are we are lagging the rest of the U.S. Why should that be? We've got less than a minute before a break, but quickly, why should that be? Is that uh, state policy, other things here at play? 
I think it's the mix of, of workers that we had. In Iowa, we had very high employment rates for people who were above the age of 55, and that's the group that atypically exited the labor market during the pandemic. And they're just not going to come back into the labor market. The other thing that's factored into the Iowa uh, labor force is that uh, 38% of our population growth since 2000 has been immigrants, and immigration was cut off during the pandemic. And we don't have any easy way of making up for that loss uh, of workers in Iowa unless we can start attracting people from other states, and we haven't been able to do that. Mm -hmm. ISU economist Peter Erasm, please stay with us. We're going to take a short break and talk more about economics, specifically our Midwest economics. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. We're back midstream in this edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. At the moment, I'm talking with uh, Iowa State University economist Peter Erasm, uh, talking about uh, the latest uh, uh, economic uh, data, especially focusing here on the Midwest before the break, uh, talking about unemployment, uh, historically low, but employment rates, labor force participation rates not recovering, um, nor um, will they anytime soon, it seems, an insufficient labor supply. Uh, uh, Peter, I wanted to have you uh, um, comment on something I know you'll uh, remark on in, in your lecture tomorrow. Um, we've had, uh, you know, during COVID, we had a, a patchwork of 50 different policies across the country country to deal with covid uh, uh, how has that, in hindsight, translated into recovery and economic growth? Well, the states that shut down most aggressively have tended to have a larger uh, difficulty in reestablishing their their labor supply and, and their employment. So you have some uh, states like Utah, like Idaho, like Texas, uh, that uh, reopened relatively aggressively, and they are now well ahead of where they were economically before the pandemic. Uh, Other states that tended to keep those restrictions on for longer periods of time uh, are still lagging where they were pre-pandemic in terms of employment and, and labor supply. And then some Particular markets, uh, for example, the District of Columbia, where you have uh, federal employment, and a lot of that federal employment went remote, Uh, you know, you have an economy that to some extent uh, has a lot of jobs in the hospitality industry that were oriented toward trying to accommodate those people who were commuting in from the places around Washington, D.C. Well, when those uh, jobs went remote, all of the hospitality jobs also um, uh, went away, not all of them, but uh, the District of Columbia, for example, is one of the worst 
recovering economies to the pandemic. And I think it's all related to the lack of workers who are in the central city. And you see similar sorts of things happening in New York City, uh, in San Francisco, where the lack of um, commuters uh, in, in their office centers are also affecting the lack of hospitality jobs in restaurants, bars, uh, hotels, um, and in retail establishments in those areas. And that's also then affecting the value of their commercial property. Mm-hmm. I wonder what this, how this bodes for the future. Um, should there be another pandemic? I guess it would be only a question of time that we would face something. I don't know what the how large we we just that's an unknown but what is the guide here for the future should something similar happen because you're talking about economic health of a state or an area here but of course that's balanced uh with this health of the citizens uh, where you have a, a more of a lockdown you tend to to um you know uh, keep people alive don't you so you have to balance those two things and other things as well don't you in policies right So there's going to be a shift in how we purchase. So during the pandemic, there was a surge in online sales. The overall spending in retail didn't change, but where we conducted retail changed. And so bricks and mortar businesses um, suffered uh, market share uh, that went to people who could deliver those same services uh, online. And it turns out that the states that shut down the most aggressively had the largest shifts away from their bricks and mortar retail to online sales. And it appears that at least some fraction of that is persisting. Uh, We have a very bright undergraduate writing a a senior thesis on this topic. And and it appears that uh, you can show that um, there's a persistent effect of government shutdowns during the pandemic on the shift from bricks and mortar to to online sales. Mm -hmm. Remote work, you mentioned, uh, is it here to stay at this level across the country here in Iowa? Has that stabilized or are we still kind of finding finding the happy medium or where we belong at this point? Well, I think it's clear that that, uh, there are a lot more jobs now that you can work remotely. There may be uh, a hesitancy to to do 100% remote since there are uh, apparent uh, increases in productivity when people are sharing information face-to-face as opposed to uh, on, on Zoom. But, um, uh, but there are a lot of firms that have switched to, say, three days uh, in the office, two days home. Um, and I think that that's going to continue. So you're going to have a lot more jobs that are sort of hybrid um, office and and home. Of course, that means you don't need as much office space. And so that's going to have an impact on on commercial real estate, in, in particularly in the cities that had the most expensive commercial real estate. So I think when you look at New York City and San Francisco with very, very expensive rents in office, they have a much larger incentive than to shift to remote work. Mm-hmm. And finally, Peter, let me drag you. I don't know if drag is the right term, but go toward, <laughs> go toward 
politics. You know I'm where at I'm your going. Disposal. Good to know, Peter, that you're game for this. We've had a lot of good news about the U.S. economy, growing at a faster rate than in other wealthy uh, countries, labor markets staying strong, inflation well below its peak, as you you mentioned, Uh, encouraging statistics that have led many economists to sort of walk back uh, the grim predictions of a recession, wages increasing, unemployment at a near half-century low, job satisfaction up. Yet Americans, we see in surveys, don't necessarily see uh, the positive side of this. Uh, Both Gallup and uh, Pew Research Center finding that just one in five Americans rated the economy as either excellent or good. Um, And this is the majorities of every group of Americans across gender, race, age, education, geography, income, party, all unfavorable use for the most part. Why the disconnect? Or is it a disconnect? Well, I think that there's a few things that one could look at. One is that there's a psychological theory that when you get something and then it's taken away, you feel a loss, even if it if the previous thing was a gift. So a lot of Americans got some of those very large transfer payments. And when those were discontinued, of course, then you feel a loss, even if you know, objectively, you knew that we were only going to get temporary um, uh, transfer payments during the pandemic. So I think that might be part of it. A second thing is that while inflation is 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 reducing, it's still prices are rising and you don't have prices going back to where they were pre-pandemic. And given that we went almost um, 30 years with relatively stable value of the currency, right? Inflation at, you know, one, two percent, maybe two and a half percent some years. I think that there's still every time you go to the grocery store, you get a little bit of a, a sticker shock. And and so I think that even though objectively the pace of of price increases has slowed, it isn't that the prices have actually gone down. And uh, perhaps if we have another uh, six months of real wage increases, meaning wage increases that are larger than the rate of inflation, you'll you'll start seeing people adapting to uh, or at least accommodating those higher prices. But remember, for almost a year, inflation was faster than wage growth. And so people were feeling a loss over that period of time. What about a third item, um, tribalism or partisanship? I have a feeling that with our partisan lenses the way they are right now, if we have a new administration taking over after the next election, we will see these party views of the economy reverse, regardless of what much of the economic data says, that you view it the way you want your tribe to view it and the the way your news sources tell you to view it. How much is that a, a factor? Oh, I'm sure that's the case, but I don't ever remember the party not in power saying that times were good. I mean, so uh, I, I'm not entirely convinced that that's. It may be that they're louder about it and they yell more, but <laughs> but uh, there's you know if you're if if you if you're not uh, uh, if you don't have the majority, uh, you're going to say that the majority is screwing up, right? And if you're yeah. in the majority, you're going to say that you know it's never been better. Uh, I'm not sure that that's all all that uh, all that new, mm-hmm. but certainly uh, yeah. 
Par- parties um, parties yeah, say, say that. In, parties have said that for a long time, but I guess I'm talking about the degree to which Americans believe those attitudes and adopt those attitudes. It is absolutely the case that Republicans... Uh, now uh, are, uh, are well on uh, in surveys will will say that the economy is in much worse shape than uh, than the Democrats. Of course, independents are a larger gr- uh, and growing group. Uh, I, I'm not entirely sure where the independents are on on this, but uh, um, <laughs> uh, but I, I I I do take your point that uh, uh, you can you can you can find people who will uh, very loudly proclaim that the, these are the best of times uh, at the same time that other people are saying these are the worst of times. Well, I look forward to another time when we talk with you, Peter Erasm, Iowa State University economist. Thank you for joining us live, Peter. Well, thank you so much. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Walking the Gendered Tightrope. That's the title of a new book by my next guests, both political scientists, one of them you know very well from the uh, her uh, views on these airwaves. Uh, Karen Kodrowski, dir- uh, political scientist, a professor of political science, director of the Carrie Chapman Katz Center for Women and Politics at Iowa State University. Hi, Karen. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having us today. Thank you for joining us. Also with your co-author, Melissa Hausman, professor of political science at Carleton University. This is in Ottawa, in uh, Ontario. Uh, And I believe that's where we're we're reaching you, right? Uh, Melissa, hi to you. Hi there. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Uh, Melissa, I believe this was a a seed of an idea that you had. So start us off here. Walking the Gender Tightrope uh, analyzes the gendered expectations for women in high offices through two examples, British Prime Minister Theresa May, U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Tell us more about what you set out to do in this book. Well, basically, Karen and I were um, chatting about certain things, and one thing that came up was, at the same time, at the end of 2018, despite being very uh, well-credentialed and, in the public eye, very respected leaders, they were facing tumultuous challenges from within their parties. Uh, Pelosi was fighting for her life to be uh, reconsidered as speaker, re-upped as speaker, and May was fighting for her life because she was her political life, of course, <laughs> Um, basically because she was fighting to try to get her Brexit package through. So very similar sorts of issues in terms of trying to get what the party wanted through the legislature. Yet what we thought was that the ramifications and the responses were in very personalized terms about, you know, are these two women fit for purpose? Can they be leaders? Which we don't think men face as often. Mm-hmm. Expand on that, Karen Kadrowski. Well, I think that one of the the big questions that that sort of called into, um, you know, one of the big issues that called into question both May and Pelosi's fitness for office is that in both cases they um, had achieved exactly what they had set out to do. So in May's case, she had successfully come up with a Brexit deal that just needed to be approved by the British Parliament. And then in Pelosi's case, they had just won a massive victory uh, over the uh, you know Republicans in Congress and had retaken control of the House of Representatives for the first time in like 
10 years. Um, and she really led the the fundraising as well as the campaign efforts for it. So the, the question that we were, you know, passing back and forth was, if this isn't good enough, exactly what is it that women have to do in order to be recognized as, you know, significant leaders and as talented politicians? Mm-hmm. And so, Karen, gender... Uh, dented that uh, what we how we think of their uh, successes. Yes, absolutely. So we use the gender tightrope analogy because we realize that what a lot of other scholars in uh, business and political science have used have been what we call the construction analogies, right? The glass ceiling, the concrete ceiling, the glass walls and things like that, which really in labyrinths, which really talked about the difficulties that women had to reach the apex of power or leadership. Uh, Whereas we were looking at women who were already there and they were still confronting um, gendered expectations and a great deal of sexism uh, from their their political opponents, but also from within their their own caucuses. And uh, so we really sought to kind of unpack that and to find out where the uh, the, the patterns lie between these two very different women. Mm-hmm. I wanted to take us back and, and remind us of um, the, the voice of uh, Theresa May and then also uh, Pelosi. Let's start with Theresa May, a sort of a, a book ending. L- let's listen to Theresa May's first speech as prime minister in July of 2016 after the resignation of her predecessor, David Cameron, part of her speech on, a Downing, on Downing Street after accepting the invitation from Queen Elizabeth II to form a new government. Let's listen. That means fighting against the burning injustice that if you're born poor, you will die on average nine years earlier than others. If you're black, you're treated more harshly by the criminal justice system than if you're white. If you're a woman, you will earn less than a man. As we leave the European Union, we will forge a a bold new positive role for ourselves in the world. And we will make Britain a country that works not for a privileged few, but for every one of us. And it was in May of 2019 that Theresa May announced she would resign from leadership of the Conservative Party later that year following three failed attempts, um, mentioned by Melissa there, to get the EU withdrawal agreement bill through the Parliament. Here were some of her remarks on Downing Street then. Our politics may be under strain, but there is so much that is good about this country so much to be proud of, so much to be optimistic about. I will shortly leave the job that it has been the honour of my life to hold. The second female Prime Minister, but certainly not the last. I do so with no ill will, but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. Former Prime Minister, British Prime Minister Theresa May in May of 2019, uh, ending her tenure. We'll be back in just a moment as we discuss uh, The Gendered Tightrope. That's the title of a book by Melissa Hausman and Karen Kudrowski. Gendered Expectations for Women in High Offices through the examples of former British Prime Minister Theresa May and U.S. Speaker of the House, formerly Nancy Pelosi. It's River to River from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion.
including above and beyond cancer. Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Today with the authors of um, a new book, Walking the Gendered Tightrope, Teresa May and Nancy Pelosi as legislative leaders. Uh, the authors, Melissa Hausman, professor of political science at Carleton University in Ottawa, and uh, Karen Kodrowski here in Iowa, director of the Carrie Chapman Center for Women in Politics at ISU. Uh, by the way, here, here's a, uh, Karen, was it more or less in this project that because you're the American, and Melissa represents, I guess, a Commonwealth voice there. That you, mm-hmm. you, 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 you focused on Nancy Pelosi, while Melissa focused more on Theresa May. Or is yeah, that not that's right? exactly right. So Melissa is a comparativist who knows a great deal about the Westminster system, and I'm an Americanist. And once upon a time, I actually studied Congress formally, so I had a good background in all of that literature. So it turned mm-hmm. out to be a very powerful pairing, if I do say so myself. <laughs> well, we heard the voice of Theresa. May as she her first speech as prime minister, then her resignation speech. So let me go along those lines with you, uh, Melissa. Uh, when we talk about how this uh, book, uh, uh, how both of these women faces continually faces face gendered critiques about their abilities to lead their caucuses on difficult policy issues, uh, give us a quick walkthrough of Ter- Theresa May's tenure and specific. Um, Examples, what you mean by gendered critiques and intraparty challenges to their leadership? Sure. Well, typically when women contest for office, especially in these systems at the national level, and these systems, I mean single-member district, first-past-the-post, they are older and much more experienced than their male colleagues yet that doesn't get taken into account. So frankly, by the time she got um, elected as prime minister in 2016, she had been in uh, parliamentary office and opposition parliaments and then governmental parliaments since 1997. She had been a local councillor in the UK. She'd been a long-term uh, activist and worker in the Conservative Party. She was the first national chair of the con- women cons- national chair of the Conservative Party, uh, just as Nancy Pelosi, of course, had been the chair of the largest state party in the U.S., the California Party. So we looked very strongly at the actual credentials that these women brought to bear and the literature, which also talks about how women work very hard and uh, very deeply for these parties. And then when they kind of dare to contest against the reigning male supremacy and the the sort of handshake and winking and nodding that men are the ones who always should be promoted, Mm -hmm. uh, basically, you know, that that's a problem. And Frankly, I could say the same thing's going on in the Democratic Party right now. Everyone's tearing their hair out saying, oh, you know, who could replace Joe Biden? Well, frankly, that's the Democratic Party's own issue of not promoting more women to be in that position. They have to look to themselves. Mm-hmm. And Just so what as a does, side note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, so, Melissa, what does Theresa May have to do to, to break through Well, again, she was the first woman chair of 
the Conservative Party. She also was uh, basically the second female Home Secretary, which is considered one of the most challenging portfolios in the British Parliament, um, and had to take a a rather tough line on immigration. She basically, her tightrope in ascending to political power, and all parties have this, sort of a left wing and a right wing and centrist, and she had to move between the left wings and the right wing. So she worked very hard, for example, to decentralize the candidate nomination and selection procedure to encourage more women and people of color to run, which earned her the enmity of a lot of very senior uh, white male MPs. And then she also had to walk the the right wing, the the tightrope end towards the right wing to say, yes, immigration should be reduced. And, And in fact, of course, we see the current prime minister of the U.K., with, of course, interestingly, the former prime minister of the U.K., David Cameron, in his cabinet, talking about the very same thing. So she had to try to navigate both the left and the right wings of her parties. And ultimately, Brexit was really controlled mainly by the right wing of the party. And opportunists like Boris Johnson seized upon it and uh, basically threw her out in 2019, as we know. Melissa Hausman with us, a co-author together with Karen Kodrowski of Walking the Gendered Tightrope, Theresa May and Nancy Pelosi as legislative leaders. Let me uh, cue up some audio uh, about, with Nancy Pelosi. And Karen, have you walk us through or describe Nancy Pelosi's gendered tightrope? But first, uh, let's uh, go back to 2007 with this audio. Uh, she spoke at a reception held in her honor at the Capitol the day after elected to the speakership for the first time. Here are some of her remarks. So, and I thank you. We're going to be working very closely together. We're all, everybody here's new best friend because we have to work as a team. We have to build the consensus that is essential to the legitimacy of what we do. And we will do it in a way that shows that Democrats are prepared to govern, ready to lead, lead and determined to make the American people proud. Now I have to get back to work. So thank you all very much. Thank you very much. Nancy Pelosi, the 52nd Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, serving in two chunks from 2007 to 2011 and again from 2019 to 23. In November of last year, 2022, Pelosi announcing she'd not uh, seek the speakership again. Here are some of her remarks. On the House when floor. I came to the Congress in 1987, there were 12 Democratic women. Now they're over 90, and we want more. <laughs> for me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. And I'm grateful that so many are ready and willing to shoulder this awesome responsibility. Karen Kodrowski, talk about Pelosi's gendered tightrope. Oh, boy, where to begin? Um, I think one of the the first things is to sort of talk about how she decided to run for the Democratic leadership. Um, She chose to run for the Democratic leadership in 1998 after she had been in the House since 1987. And she was not on the leadership 
ladder. So the Democrats, during their 40 years of domination that started um, under Harry Truman and ended in 1995, had developed really kind of a mentorship and a leadership ladder from, you know, majority whip to majority leader to Speaker of the House. And um, one of her former colleagues, when she worked as a Senate staffer, uh, Steny Hoyer was on that leadership ladder, but she was not. And the thing is, is that she started to campaign for the leadership when there was no opening. And then when um, the Democrats lost the uh, majority again, Richard Gephardt stepped, uh, stepped aside and then um, David Bonnier um, uh, left the majority whip position. And so there were now openings in the, um, in the House of Representatives in the Democratic leadership. And she just decided that she was going to run and that she was, even though she was not anybody's heir apparent like Steny Hoyer was. Um, and the way that she campaigned was that she hosted dinners at her house. Mm. Uh, so she would invite people over and then she would talk about how she wanted to run for whip even when there wasn't an opening and she did that for three years. And then eventually, you know, some of the old guard males came forward and said, what do you ladies want that we can get through the house for you? And in exchange, you will step away and not run. And she wasn't having it. She, um, you know, wow. wanted to move forward. <laughs> yeah, she wanted to move forward and she ran and she eventually won. But the thing was, is that over her 20 years as Democratic leader, she faced six direct or proxy challenges to her leadership, right? Where uh, proxy challenges being that she uh, backed someone else for another leadership position like committee chair. And uh, Hoyer, who ended up in the leadership with her, ended up like supporting somebody else. And the caucus had to decide uh, which one they were going to support, right? And so there were two of these sort of direct challenges to um, to uh, Pelosi's leadership. But interestingly enough, the very first direct challenge that she faced was eight months after she had been elected as Democratic whip. Mm-hmm. So what that and then you get down to the point where she wins this huge victory in 2018 and the Democrats are poised to retake power and she is set to make history as only the second speaker in American history that would have, you know, lot, whose majority would have been lost and then regained under their leadership. The other one being Sam Rayburn, where she was still challenged. So we argue in the book that Pelosi's leadership was never fully accepted um, because and, and that she must have been seen as vulnerable by some if she was continually facing these challenges. So it turned out that about every three or four years, there was either a direct or a proxy challenge to Pelosi's leadership. Mm-hmm. Fascinating uh, book that you've researched and, and written here, Karen Kodrowski and Melissa Hausman. We only have about five minutes left. I wanted to pull you into more contemporary times and talk about gender, your thoughts on gender in the 2024 race, your observations um, uh, with a number of names that we see regularly in our news. Nikki Haley, for one, um, um, the only female in the group of contenders uh, for the GOP presidential nomination. Um, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, on the ticket, presumably again uh, with uh, President Biden. We also have Liz Cheney, uh, Republican 
uh, booted from those ranks, so to speak, uh, weighing a third-party bid to stop Trump from becoming president. Uh, uh, Melissa, let me start with you. Your observations on, on, on gender currently in our race here. Well, again, there's a lot to say, but some things that we've got to look at and frankly worry about are all the people heading for the exits from Congress in 2024 and how that's going to shake down. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. um, Well, I mean, Kamala Harris, I think she, it's great that she's VP. Um, She was plucked from not a long time, of course, in the Senate, sort of the same issue as Barack Obama when he ran for the presidency. So, Kamala Harris hasn't had, I think, a a lot of time and a lot of opportunity to establish her bona fides, whereas on the other hand, I don't agree with her positions, but, you know, frankly, Nikki Haley has Mm -hmm. as both U.N. ambassador and governor of South Carolina. So she is a more known quantity, as is Liz Cheney. So I think there's a lot of different balls in the air here. I mean, one Mm -hmm. is we have to look at Congress and what's going on there. But then, yeah, in terms of the Republican and the Democratic, well, the Republican nomination race and the presumed or who knows what Democratic nomination race. Mm -hmm. Karen, your observations. Yeah, sort of two things. I think one of the uh, things where we see gender really playing out in the presidential race is how Vivek Ramaswamy is always talking about uh, uh, Nikki Haley in high heels or otherwise trivializing her experience, like mm-hmm. saying that she just had coffee with other people in the U.N. Um, and, you know, Haley, to her credit, has had really powerful comebacks trying to reframe wearing high heels as a weapon rather than as a symbol of femininity and therefore weakness. Um, but another thing that I talk about in terms of um, Nancy Pelosi in the book is that uh, during COVID and um, after January 6th, she was tasked with sort of preserving the health and safety of all of the members of the House and um, and American institutions. And I call this institutional care work. In other words, it's, you know, really sort of that mother role on the largest stage. And I think that Liz Cheney's motivations are very similar to that. She mm. is very worried about, you know, American democracy and preserving the institutions and traditions um, of, of our political system. So in another sense, she is really using her voice and um, her clout to 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 engage in institutional care work, first on the January 6th committee and now as a private citizen. In this realm of gender and politics, Karen, how does the issue of abortion fit in? Of course, since the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year in this context. Yeah, boy, that's a big one. I think that Nikki Haley is making a a very powerful argument, which is a practical political argument. You know, we don't have the votes to pass a complete ban or a six-week ban nationally, so we need to think about what is possible. And, you know, just yesterday, Politico was was reporting about how Republican pollsters are saying that the winning argument for Republicans is to talk about the availability of birth control and to sidestep the issue of abortion altogether. 
Now, for her part, Nancy Pelosi worked very hard to try and keep um, a complete array of reproductive services, including abortion, in the Affordable Care Act. She was not successful. Um, abortion, um, the abortion mandate was taken out of the Affordable Care Act, but she was successful in getting that landmark piece of legislation passed and has, was, was crucial in, in keeping it as law as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Karen, we have less than a minute left, but uh, forward-looking question here. Will women in politics have any less of a gendered tightrope to walk in the future, do you see? No. <laughs> Care to elaborate? <laughs> On why? Melissa, would you like? <laughs> well, because you know, gender is 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 really kind of you know in the in the water, shall we say? You know, um, gendered expectations are just so ubiquitous around us that we don't even realize them often when we see them. And so, you know, men have gendered expectations too, and if people deviate from those unwritten expectations, um, mm. that that it will be controversial. Mel- Melissa, you want to jump in? Very quickly. No, I think you said it beautifully, Karen. It's in the water, and uh, people deviate from expectations even when they don't know they're doing it, and then there's ramifications later. Okay. Fascinating topic here you've covered in your book, Walking the Gendered Tightrope, Theresa May and Nancy Pelosi as Legislative Leaders, uh, that comparison examination by Melissa Hausman and Karen Kodrowski. Thank you for joining us uh, for this portion of the program. Fascinating. Thank you, Thank you. Tomorrow uh, on our program, a News Buzz edition, uh, we'll have the first installment of our River to River series, Home State View. We'll focus on New Jersey, uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Today's show produced by Danny Gear with help from Catherine Perkins and Steve Cooper. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.